I'm Costa Lucas. You are listening to This is Sparta. Sparta. Hey friends, it's Costa. I just wanted to take a moment at the beginning to talk about This is Sparta. This was a podcast that existed in some form a while ago, and while the response to it from those that listened to it was nothing but effusive, I wasn't ever really satisfied with it, but I just needed to get something out there in some form. I don't actually think I knew what I wanted it to be. Do I keep going? Do I turn it into something else? I've been through every configuration in my mind before arriving right here. So This is Sparta is about a very specific important experience for me, and this is all it will ever be. I have no plans for it other than to exist outside of me. With that said, I also reserve the right to change my mind in the future, whatever the odds of that happening are. So if you choose to listen to it, thank you. If you choose to share it with someone, may a being in the sky bless you 1,000 times. And if you choose to do nothing, thanks for stopping by. I'll be here if you ever change your mind. Sending you some big love, and for goodness sake, please look after each other, especially in a world where none of us knows what the hell is going on. Chapter 1. To Love and Conquer. Let me tell you all a story about one of the most important things of my life. My gastric sleeve surgery. Or rather, let me tell you a story about why an otherwise common life-saving procedure was and still is such an earth-shattering experience for me. You see, when I tell people about it, being profoundly overweight for most of my life and of my decision to undergo surgery, I usually get a whole host of reactions ranging from shock, you know, you don't look like you used to be fat, to curiosity. For me, one of the questions I get that sticks out to me the most, though, is how long did it take? Because I often think to myself, how long did which part take? The procedure? That was about 90 minutes, which is so hard to comprehend when I consider what was done to me. What was that exactly? Well, the procedure involves making five incisions into my abdomen for all of the implements to go, including a laparoscopic camera, something to cut me up and something to sew me back up, and for all my bits to be pulled out of. And if you're curious, what they cut off and pull out is actually 70% of your stomach pouch. The recovery? Well, I was back home after two days. I took two weeks off work, but more so because I had to, not because I wanted to. And then it was about six weeks before I could stop wearing compression gear. Before I could eat full meals again? It was about three or so months before I chewed food again, and then another two years before I could eat anything without my stomach automatically hurting. But to say any of these was the start or the end point feels misleading. The real answer is just not that straightforward, at least if I want to answer honestly. If you might be considering this for yourself or have a loved one going through something similar, I feel it's a really important answer. So here's mine. Okay, so how long did it take then? Starting point was about a year and a half before the procedure when I was in the depths of despair at my psychologist's office. Let's just say it was a really bad time for me, an already relatively seasoned sufferer of various depressive and anxiety disorders. For reasons that escape me now, I think I was overwhelmed by the enormity of seemingly unending challenges of being in my mid-twenties, I was out of a job and back home from a failed career move to Canberra. Since coming back to Perth, I had attempted numerous small career changes which also failed. 
I'd completely abandoned any attempt at intimate relationships because the mere thought of it made me physically sick. And the relationships I did have with the family and close friends I love so much took so much out of me because they were built upon me being a very compromised version of myself that I had maladapted into to survive the life I was living. At that point, the sheer weight of existence was heightened by the sheer weight of my own huge body. And in the absence of being able to explode my body off of me, the only option I felt I had was to give up. I could feel it. My heart was giving my brain the commands to my body to start shutting it all down. But it was during the session with my psychologist that something changed. As I was prone to do at this stage, I was back and forth with Peter about my options, making my case about why this solution wouldn't work for me. And the idea of surgery came up again. I was so resistant to the idea at first because it seemed like a shortcut. I found the idea of having surgery because I was too weak to do it the old-fashioned way so crushingly embarrassing. That was until my psychologist said something to me that I will never forget. He says to me, Costa, have you ever considered the possibility that even if you haven't always made the best decisions, you still did the best you could in the circumstances, considering everything you say you want to change about yourself, you're fighting an uphill battle all alone. Have you ever considered that getting surgery is not an act of weakness, but actually an act of love for yourself for the first time in your life. I was really caught off guard by that one. And for once, I didn't have an answer for him. I just kind of froze and thought. It never occurred to me that my circumstances up to now had been challenging. It was at that moment that I realized I couldn't make a good decision for myself if I didn't love myself first. Things definitely changed in that moment, but it still took me a while to commit. It was more like a tattoo decision, you know, if I still wanted it after a few months, maybe I should just get it. So I did. For me, this is actually my starting point. The long overdue act of self-love that saved my life. Loving myself was the most radical thing I could do. It's the most radical thing anyone can do. But since we're talking about how long something took, that implies an end point, doesn't it? So when would I say the procedure ended? Well, the truth is, it hasn't. And it doesn't. Chapter 2 Australian Gothic If you've ever had a lifelong battle with a personal problem, chances are you've taken a few weird, maybe drastic measures to come out on top. For me, that was in 2012, when I went to a health retreat that was hosted by a fundamentalist religious sect deep in the southern highlands of New South Wales. I first encountered this retreat when I was living in Canberra. With my friends, I regularly visit the Central Coast for a weekend away for a break from the public service grind. On these trips, we would frequently pass a sign to a health retreat that had three magic words, a new beginning. Those are three words that captivated me so much because I had been so obsessed with the concept of a big reset for a long time. However, it wasn't until I moved back home, I felt it call me to come back for that big reset. I was out of options. I wasn't working. I was still incredibly depressed. What did I have to lose, right? So before I knew it, I was back on a plane to Canberra and back on a train through Sydney to this retreat, keen to start this new beginning. 
While organising my stay at this retreat, I was told that I'd be picked up from the train station closest to the retreat, as public transport was basically non-existent. I'd imagine it'd be a luxurious ride as the train pulled up to the station, and I began to simmer with excitement. The train station looked quaint from afar, as it still bore the hallmarks of a heritage building from the region's colonial days. But as I stepped out onto the train platform, that quaintness became creepy. It was in the middle of the day on a weekend, and no one was there. No one except for a twiggy little man in a station wagon, that is. If it wasn't for his jacket emblazoned with the retreat's logo, the only words we may have exchanged may have been, sorry, no spare change. That's right, a stranger he was not. That was my ride. After exchanging some awkward pleasantries with him, I get into his messier car, and we make our way to the retreat. Creepily, probably to no one else but me, we had to make a stop at the local shops to pick up something. A solitary onion. Don't ask me why, but this made me so uncomfortable. Maybe like a bad omen. The inner dialogue starts up. Give it a chance, you just got here. Not long after our detour, we pulled into the driveway, where I saw the very sign that enticed me here in the first place. We're here, I thought. And we just keep driving and driving and driving. Very slowly down this endless driveway. As it turns out, the retreat was not very close to the entrance at all. We drove for what felt like forever into this deep, dark forest, becoming engulfed by the shade of the canopy. It took about two more kilometres before we arrived at this small, unassuming house that was unnervingly nondescript. The inner dialogue continues as I mindlessly chat with Twigman. Not looking like any of those pictures I saw on the website, I thought. Maybe it's nice on the inside. When I walked into the homestead, everything was just dull. Beige, greys, all the shades of white. The doors to our rooms were lined up, one next to the other like a hospital corridor. The place was devoid of any life or anything that would ignite your senses at all. It felt like the whole house was designed to dull your ability to feel anything. Maybe they're just trying to create an environment of stillness and calm, I reasoned with myself, feebly. Before long, I'd finally meet the people who would be looking after us. And it wasn't a suite of sleek-looking professionals or the pretty waifish nymphs you'd find at a day spa. It was Twigman's family. Hang on, what? First, I met his wife, who was like Terry Owen crossed with Catherine Knight. And if you don't know who the latter is, I dare you to look her up. Next was their son, who, on the surface at least, seemed harmless. He had that sort of country affability that was cloyingly earnest at times, but when stood next to his wife, his affability took on a very sinister tone. Of this menagerie of creepers, it would be that young man's wife that would leave the biggest impression on me, not because of anything she said or did, but actually because of the complete opposite. The best way to describe her is that she was basically an emaciated, heavily pregnant child bride. In fact, she was so quiet and she seemed so meek, that she was just a vortex of a person. Have I just signed up for a stay with the Adams family down under? Come on, be nice, you've only just arrived. Once I put my stuff in my room, I walked into the living room. It looked like something out of an 80s Australian drama, all floral upholstery and sallowed carpet. I spotted a flat screen TV, but before I could get excited, I was quickly informed by scary Terry Irwin that it was for special viewings only. Eek. I wasn't about to argue. However, Twigman was quick to add that if we really had to watch something, they had a selection of material for us to choose from. Two towering bookcases of pseudoscience propaganda and God-fearing hellfire and brimstone. 
I don't remember seeing any of that in the promo material, I thought to myself. As I would later find out, every aspect of the care we would receive in this retreat was based on the teaching of a fundamentalist religious sect. From the days the office would be unattended, even to us as paying guests, to the nutrition and wellness plan we were subscribing to, it was all based in the practices of this fundamentalist sect. Quickly realising that what I had signed up for would be very different to what I was about to get, those two big bookcases became like two pillars. One was a pillar of shame and one was a pillar of harm. I was Samson trying to hold them up and my temple would collapse on me if I moved any which way. I essentially became mute and what follows is five Groundhog Days of torturously long break of dawn walks, of coursework that demanded no opposition, of exclusively plant-based meals, which was basically gruel, of no external stimulation and technology whatsoever, of the countless hours of silence in our rooms when we weren't doing the coursework. This day, the main thing my body remembers is the five-day tensions headache I carried with me the whole time. It was probably a build-up of unanswered questions, blocked thoughts, and a whole lot of self-blame. I was such an unresponsive automaton the whole week that it actually took me until day five to realize that I'd in fact been sharing this experience with other people. But unlike the others, I had committed to a three-week stay, not five days. They would all be leaving and I would be stuck here by myself. Suddenly those strangers I barely noticed became a lifeline I couldn't live without. Even more shocking to me was the fact that everyone else was just as horrified with the experience as I was. But this fact only came to light when we found ourselves all huddled in one room together, actually finally getting to know each other one night. How weird is that family? Did anyone else notice what was available on the bookshelf? Man, I'm so glad I'm getting the hell out of here. Then came the comment that set my unravelling into motion. I don't know how you're going to do this for three weeks. As it turns out, that was all the permission that I needed to have a full-blown panic attack. I went from giving nothing to anyone all week to going nuclear. I was flooded with rage, terror, shame and despair, trapped in a spin cycle. One of them had to help me catch my breath. She placed one hand on my head and one on my tummy and guided me back to reality. These nice strangers begged me to leave with them and I suddenly couldn't bear the thought of being here without these people I'd barely paid attention to. So the next day in the morning at the crack of dawn, I hitched a ride to that train station I was picked up from and caught the train out of there. I've spared a few details here because it's a pretty difficult experience to reflect on. While I've learned to find a lot of humour in it since then, parts that hurt are the ones that reflect back to me the other times in my life when I've sought help or allowed myself to be vulnerable, only to be preyed upon by people telling you they have an answer. But... Let me quote someone far smarter than me who captures where I and others so often go wrong when trying to find answers to make their lives more livable. Susie Singh, who is a New Delhi-based therapist, author and international speaker on karma and consciousness, says this about finding that balance between seeking help and seeking relief from suffering. Never give your power away. Learn to question things. A true teacher will always take the trouble to explain it to you. A false teacher will subject you to authority and demand your trust. Trust, however, even by a teacher, must be earned. When it is given without proof, what they are doing is taking your power away.
chapter 3. Sleep. There's nothing like a hot summer breeze to remind you of the crushing weight of discomfort from being in an enormous body. Is this my fault? Mum asks. I respond flatly. I don't know. I was too distracted by my own nerves to try and alleviate her misplaced guilt. It's the day before my big surgery. Mum and I are sitting on the front veranda with our customary Greek coffees in hand in silence. Been a year and a half since I decided to undergo this procedure. I've spoken to all the psychologists, surgeons, GPs, physiotherapists and personal trainers. I've read all the source materials. Maybe I should back out. After all, I'm now two weeks into this pre-surgery fast. and I've absolutely nailed it. What if I just kept going? But I recognise that line of thinking for what it is. A thought trap designed to protect me from some sort of unknowable outcome. What I quickly remembered at that point is that a traditional diet, unlike a pre-surgery fast, has no clear endpoint. At least with a pre-surgery fast, there was a very clear A to B road ahead for the next two weeks. If I was to do this so-called old-fashioned way, what would that be? When I try to visualise it, all I see is an open-ended future of deprivation and hunger. Surgery actually make that clear, I wondered to myself. After a while, I circle back to the idea of the road being A to B, and I have a realisation. While point A has been the last 30 years, point B is actually not that clear. What happens when I take away the only coping mechanism I've ever known? Eating has been my only crutch in tough times. Obviously, that hasn't worked out too well in the long term, but it did give me those short-term boosts of something that would allow me to trick myself into keeping on going. Am I just going to wake up in a new body all of a sudden? A new face in the mirror? A new brain? One thing I knew was that with this, point B is the only direction I could head in. After an all-too-familiar sleepless night that night, I find myself in the hospital the next day. It was two days before my 29th birthday and I'm spending it getting marked up like a pig in an abattoir. I look down at my almost naked body and I see five bullseyes on my abdomen, the soon-to-be entry sites for the surgery. I've often heard about the loss of dignity people feel when they're in the hospital system, but this was the first taste of it for myself. No one was unfriendly or professional. It's more that I just felt like a literal meat sack, standing there mindlessly answering questions, being prodded, folded and moved around complying with requests. No one's talking to you. They're talking at your skin. I get that that's their job, but intellectualizing it doesn't do that much to quell the absurdity of it all. What's that saying? Uh, It's like turkeys voting for Christmas. The total forfeiture of power and agency dawns on me, and doing so all for the sake of trying to improve my life again. What's going to be different this time? One hour passes. Another hour passes. The claustrophobia of my little waiting bay was starting to get to me before the curtain screeches open. Okay, Costa, we'll be taking you through to the theatre now. Bye, Mama. Bye, Papa. I'll see you all in a couple of hours, I say meekly. My heart slides up into my throat as I'm being wheeled through numerous hospital wards, not knowing exactly what my destination looked like until it just stopped moving. Finally, after what felt like an eternity, I arrived at the theatre and I felt... relief? That was unexpected. I could literally see all the implements they were about to cut me open with, shining with sterile glee, and yet a wave of calm just washes over me. I haven't even been given any drugs at this point. To this day, I can still see the surgeons scrubbing up while laughing with each other about God knows what, barely registering my funereal entrance. On goes the oxygen mask as they ask me more questions. 
start to feel tingly. Amidst the casualness of the surgeons was the young medical intern whose presence I actually found the most comforting. Pretty sure her job was to gently caress my hand and assure me that I would be okay. And quite honestly, it worked. Maybe it was the drugs by that point, but my body or brain didn't know the difference. If nothing else, after years of sleeping so badly, I'm about to have the deepest sleep I've had in some time. You've earned this, I think to myself. At least this. Chapter 4 Wake and Fright Uh-oh, his heart rate's gone way up. Am I going to be okay? Just relax and stay calm. Okay. There's a Salvador Dali painting called Sleep, which features an image of a deformed humanoid head held up by flimsy stilts of the sleep state, waiting to break at any moment. This was the vision of myself I awoke to, a blob floating precariously in a morphine ketamine-induced catatonia, waiting to wake up at any moment. It was about two days of that. When I finally open my eyes on day three, another Dali-like painting comes to life in my mind. A vision of me in a hospital bed as both mother and child. I was swaddled in bandages. I could barely keep down any water, let alone milk. And the part of me was ripped out through a small opening in my body. It was also my birthday. My 29th birthday on the 29th of that month. I'd given rebirth to myself. But rather than a celebration of giving life to something growing inside of me for nine months, or just simply celebrating making it another year, it was a crushingly lonely affair, mournful and uncertain. I was finally separated from something that clung to me for most of my waking life, at once parasitic and life-giving. What would I do without it? I looked down at my body, and it was still the same body I didn't want to be in. I looked at my family, and I know they still see the exact same person, and it wasn't the person I didn't ever feel like I was. I looked out the window of the hospital room to find some sort of omen from nature to tell me what would come next. It was the same indifferent world outside, and it continued with or without. I looked inwards, and it was so dark that not even black could escape. It was just a devil's dust bowl of words, cutting off pieces of yourself to find yourself, like you always do. Chapter 5 Spartan Mirage There is this concept of meditation I'm enamored with that sums it up. It is a Hebrew concept called Hagar, which loosely means to growl, utter, speak, muse. Far from the peace-seeking stillness that we associate meditation with in popular culture, scholars compare the practice of Hagar to a lion devouring the flesh of its kill. 
You might be tempted to compare it to rumination, where a cow mindlessly rechews cud. But Hagar is about paying the deepest, most fearless attention to and communing with your internal world and showing your most base self to your maker. This is a really hard experience for me to reflect on because I'm still devouring the kill. Or perhaps even more accurately, every day is a fight in not trying to let the meat devour me, the lion. I knew then and know now that these things don't happen overnight, but my heart really underestimated how much I wanted something to change right then and there. The surgery itself was a raging success, don't get me wrong. Apparently I was up on my feet almost instantly, something which the surgeon seemed elated to see. But it wasn't enough. It was never going to be enough. The psychs warned me, the surgeons warned me, the physicians warned me. Everyone warned me. True battle wouldn't be a physical one. It never was. I guess as most lessons learned, I had to taste that for myself. If I've learned one major lesson in all of this so far, it is that no matter what you do or what you change, you will always find yourself, no matter how much you try not to. What do I mean by that? Well, by going through this whole experience, yes, my life has actually changed for the better. In fact, my life was saved. But it also brought me closer to the things that I fear most. As terrifying as that sounds, the results of that have been mixed. On the one hand, when I dissociate and see myself doing something self-destructive, I'm still frozen by the same fear that smothers progress. In fact, I'm actually even more acutely aware of it while still paralyzed into inaction. Sometimes it feels like being awake without anesthetic during a surgery. On the other hand, I actually recognize my fear enough to talk to them a bit more, to make me more curious about them and to ask them questions no one has asked them before, ones that they're uncomfortable with to endure them, and to even live with them if they insist on staying. I just have to be strict with these shared living conditions. My fears certainly don't love me, but they haven't conquered me either. And right now, that's okay. At least that's okay until something forces us to fight to the death. I'm Costa Lucas. This is Sparta. Beats and Soundscapes by Blackjack and Production Wizardry by Jimmy Lindbergh.